Do you feel like there was sometimes a double standard, though, as a woman? Of course. Right. Of course. Men who curse, men who bully, men who run roughshod over their teams, they're considered strong and they're considered perfectly acceptable in their behavior. Women who do that are bitches or shrews or shrill or you name it. That's obviously a double standard. And I've not had much patience for double standards all my life. From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. That's Susan Rice, who served as national security advisor and UN ambassador under President Barack Obama. She just published a memoir, Tough Love. She chose the title as a reference to the style of parenting her parents used while raising her, a young black girl growing up in a heavily white social circle in Washington, D.C. Their lesson to us was don't let those barriers stop you, at least mentally. There, you know, there may be somebody who denies you X, Y, or Z because you're black or you're a woman or whatever. But the pernicious aspect of racism they taught us was to let the bigotry get in your own head so that you start to doubt yourself. Susan Rice went to Stanford, became a Rhodes Scholar, earned her PhD, and joined the Clinton administration, where she gained a reputation as a hard-charging boss whose ambition rubbed some people the wrong way. We talked about that, how she changed and evolved as a manager, the double standard she sees for women in the workplace, and the 2015 White House Correspondents' Dinner, where she first met Donald Trump, who would go on to become president and vilify her. From behind me comes this hulking man and literally kind of lifts me up out of the chair. And I turn around and I recognize him. Obviously, it's Donald Trump. And he grabs me and hugs me. And But while he was hugging me, he whispered this into my ear. You, you know, I want you to know you, you were treated very unfairly over Benghazi, a phrase we've heard him say very unfairly. He says it a lot, mm-hmm. usually about himself. But in this case, it was about <laughs> me and that, you know, I was doing a good job for the country. And now here's my conversation with Ambassador Susan Rice. Well, Ambassador, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Anna. Let's start by talking about the big national security issue right now. No surprise. The whistleblower report, which led to the revelation President Trump personally asked the president of Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden's son. What has been your reaction as this has all unraveled? I mean, incredulity, quite honestly. It's extraordinary to see in black and white the transcript of the president's own words where he is using his office to shake down a foreign leader not for any purpose that serves our national security or our country's interests, but purely and simply for his personal political gain. And that he's asking for dirt on an American political opponent from a foreigner, therefore asking that foreigner to interfere in our election again. It's extraordinary. And it's a complete abuse of his power. And I think it's getting the scrutiny that it deserves. You worked in the Clinton administration when he was impeached. How did that impact the administration's ability from a foreign policy perspective to advocate or lead on the world stage? It was a really good question. I was, uh, at the time President Clinton was being impeached at the State Department, uh, I was uh, the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs. And so my perspective is a little bit removed. But I think for the most part, 
because the Clinton White House was so deliberate about keeping the impeachment effort, counter-impeachment effort, in a very tight and Mm -hmm. isolated circle and preserving our ability to continue to govern on everything else, it didn't get into our national security bloodstream the way it is today. And it is today because, one, it's a national security issue uh, that's led to the inquiry, but other be- also because the president seems to be taking this all on himself. And all of the public communication from him these days is about impeachment or some threat related to impeachment. So I think in this context, it's going to be very different and very difficult to wall off the work of governing whether domestically or internationally. And I think that's going to be extremely detrimental uh, to our interests, which we can talk about, but I think have already been grossly compromised over the last three years. Are you worried at all by how impeachment in 2019 or 2020 could affect the way America is viewed around the world? Look, our standing in the world has plummeted over the last two and a half years. We're denigrating our allies. We're starting trade wars and other conflicts with our allies. Mm -hmm. We're embracing our opponents like Putin, like Kim Jong-un, and and heralding them as great uh, leaders and, and, and friends when they're anything but. Right now, up is down and down is up already in national security and in our leadership role of the world. Um, I think countries around the world are, have long started to question our interests, our purpose. And I think in particular, they question the president's interests. Is he acting in our national interest? I would say the evidence is no. Or is he acting in his personal interest, whether financial or political? And that seems to be the case. So there's a lot of cause for our allies to have doubt, our friends, even our adversaries. I want to take a step back and talk about your background, which you discuss in the book. Uh, Your parents were both ambitious, high achievers, Tell us about what they did. Well, I'll, let me tell you also where they came from. Sure. But my, I'll tell you, start, start with what they ended up doing. Uh, my father was trained as an economist. He had his PhD uh, in economics. He was a banker in the private sector. He worked at the World Bank for many years. He worked in the Treasury Department early in his career. Uh, he ended his career as a governor of the Federal Reserve System. And also, after he left government, served on a number of corporate boards. My mother spent most of her career in education policy, many years at the college board. And in that role, she was instrumental in helping to establish the Pell Grant program, which many will know as the program that provided money without interest (laughs) to low-income students of all backgrounds in this country who wanted to attend college. And the Pell Grant program has now enabled 80 million Americans to go to college. And when my mom passed, uh, sadly, early in 2017, the last days of the Obama administration, her obituaries heralded her as the mother of Pell Grants, which I still find really moving. So they both were extremely successful, had very high standards for themselves and for their children. I'm sure for you as well. (laughs) You didn't escape that. (laughs) No slacking in our household, which is in part why my book is called Tough Love. But they came from very humble backgrounds. And My mother uh, was the fifth of five children of Jamaican immigrants who came to Portland, Maine in 1912. My grandfather was a janitor. My mother, grandmother was a seamstress and they had nothing. They had no education, but they saved and they scraped and they relentlessly pursued the American dream and were able to send all five of their kids to to college. 
Similar story on my dad's side. Um, my dad's family came from South Carolina, uh, the descendants of slaves. My great-grandfather was himself a slave. He fought in the Union Army after emancipation uh, during the Civil War. And after the war ended, due to the kindness of a white officer, uh, was able to get first his, his elementary education and ultimately a college education. He went on to be a minister, uh, and he founded a school called the Bordentown School in New Jersey that educated seven generations of, uh, of African Americans. So on both sides you know, of my family, which uh, were very different in their origins, was a very strong commitment to education, to excellence, to family, and to community and service. Because of who your parents were and what they did, you went to some very prestigious schools here in Washington. They were also very white. Around 10% of the kids you went to school with growing up were black. How conscious were you of race? I mean, you talk about that story. I mean, that's really, truly the American dream, but also a lot of, you know, overcoming adversity based on background, based on, I'm sure, color of skin at certain times. So just to flesh out the story, I was born and raised here in Washington. I went to the National Cathedral School for Girls, which was, is and was, a, as you say, a prestigious and predominantly white private school, all girls. I had uh, great friends that remain some of my closest sisters to this day from National Cathedral School. And one of the things that was so interesting about growing up in that environment where many of the students were the daughters of members of Congress or ambassadors or what have you, was that I grew up in a really bipartisan environment where many of my friends were Republicans or children of Republicans, themselves Republicans, <laughs> and where things like Watergate hit us very personally. Two of my schoolmates had parents that went to jail over Watergate. Race was something, though, that was inescapable. I mean, you know, Washington, D.C. Sure. It's a predominantly, or at least it was when I was growing up, it's getting a little... More mixed now, but it was about 70% black, and yet the school was very white. Mm -hmm. My parents had backgrounds in which race had formed their development. So my father grew up in segregated South Carolina in the 20s and 30s. He fought in a segregated army, in actually the Army Air Force, in World War II at Tuskegee. He couldn't eat in restaurants off the base where German POWs were being served uh, when he was based in Kentucky. I mean, so racial prejudice deeply influenced and affected my, my father on the one side and my mother in a different sense on the other. And so their experiences, their lessons were ones that were familiar to me and that they they made sure I understood. And when, you know, painful things were happening in this city, for example, after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, I was only four years old. But my parents took me and my baby brother, who was about two, down to the 14th Street corridor, which had been burnt out in the riots following the assassination. And they took us to Resurrection City, where the Poor People's Campaign was camped out in in the mud on the mall, protesting against poverty. So they made sure that even though we were very fortunate to go to first-rate schools, even though they scraped as government employees and uh, working in nonprofits to be able to enable us to do that, that we had a perception and an understanding that there were people who looked like us who had a great deal less and didn't have the opportunities that, that, that we had, and therefore we'd better not waste them. In the book, you say your parents' mantra was, never use race as an excuse or an advantage. 
What did you take that to mean growing up? Well, they, they said a lot of things of importance. <laughs> as, all, all, as all our parents <laughs> do, yes. <laughs> that was one of them. I mean, the, the, related to that, and to put it in context, you know, they taught us to always do our best and that we were capable people. But as for the barriers, their lesson to us was don't let those barriers stop you, at least mentally. There, you know, there may be somebody who denies you X, Y, or Z because you're black or you're a woman or whatever. But the pernicious aspect of racism they taught us was to let the bigotry get in your own head so that you start to doubt yourself, so that you are, you know, risk averse, that you don't put yourself forward, that you don't do your best because you're, you're feeling in some fashion constrained or defined in a, in a, in a limiting fashion. So against that backdrop, they taught us, you know, if we do our best and if we even fall short, they'll be in our corner. They're, they're, as long as we just weren't half-assed, <laughs> we did our best and we fell short, that's fine. But always do your best. We ourselves were remarkably privileged. We had the opportunity to get a great education. And, you know, if we fell short, it was on us. So in our case, don't, don't blame being a black or a woman for your own shortcomings. You know, do your best. And then, you know, don't use it to your advantage. Mm-hmm. When I was in high school, as I write in the book, there was sort of the the flip side of that equation, where some of the parents of my classmates, of my white classmates, were telling their daughters that, don't worry about Susan, uh, she's going to get into good schools because she's black. And so it was their way of discounting whatever I might achieve, and I guess making themselves or their daughters feel better about whatever they might achieve. And so for me, that made me feel like I had to just shoot the lights out to prove to them, I didn't need to prove it to myself, but to prove to them that that was BS. I was going to get into whatever colleges I was going to get into because I was the best I could be. And, you know, when I ended up sharing the award for being valedictorian with one of my classmates, I was able to turn around and say, actually, by your standards, I'm, I'm good enough too. In the 80s, you went to Stanford, then became a Rhodes Scholar and went to Oxford. But you weren't always sure you wanted to go into foreign policy or instead go to law school. Then you had a conversation that changed your mind. Well, I wasn't at all sure. I didn't, let me put it differently. I did not have any idea that I would end up in foreign policy. When I went to Oxford, my plan was to go to law school after two years of getting my master's at Oxford. I had this great fortune to to have the scholarship. I could study anything I wanted. And at that point, <laughs> I still thought that I might be interested in running for elective office. I was thinking I'd do some form of public interest law, you know, be a civil rights lawyer or uh, a poverty lawyer or something like that. It'd be wise to to have some international knowledge and experience. So I decided, let me use these two years and study international relations. And I did, and I really liked it. And then I was sort of trying to decide, well, do I really still want to go to law school or do I want to get my PhD in international relations? And I had lunch one day with Eleanor Holmes Norton, who many will know as the D.C. delegate in Congress for many years. But back then, she was still a professor of law at Georgetown. And she was kind enough to take me out to lunch and give me some advice. And I was explaining this question I had in my mind. And she said, well, are you enjoying your time uh, studying international relations? I said, yeah, I love it. I'm, I'm going to get to do field research and blah, blah, blah. 
And she said, you know, and how old will you be when you get your PhD if you were going to go do it? And I said, well, actually, because of the way the system works over here, I can do it pretty quickly. I'll be 25. And she says, and, and how many African-American lawyers do you know? I said, tons. And she said, well, how many African-American PhDs in international relations do you know? And at the, that point, I couldn't name any. And she said, well, if you love it and you're excited about it, and you're only going to be 25 when you're done. Why don't you go get your PhD? And if you still want to go to law school afterwards, you're not going to be too old. I was like, that's great, great advice, <laughs> great logic. And so I credit her for actually encouraging me to, to follow uh, what I was excited about. And then when I was done with my PhD, I decided I did not need to go to law school. You later worked for Madeleine Albright when she was Secretary of State. And as you mentioned, you became Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs when you were in your early 30s. That's a lot of responsibility to come at an early age. How did you adapt to that? Well, it was a lot of responsibility to come at an early age. I wasn't flying completely blind because I'd had four years previously at the White House, at the National Security Council, uh, reporting to the National Security Advisor and the President. So I had the substantive knowledge, but I didn't have the years of experience in the State Department, in the Foreign Service, in the field. And I was very young. I think I was, and still may be, the youngest regional assistant secretary of state at 32. And I was also a brand new mother, a breastfeeding mother, walking into the State Department. So here I am, very young, African-American woman with a baby on my head, basically. <laughs> and my direct reports, the ambassadors, uh, the senior people in the bureau, were 20 to 30 years my senior, spent you know virtually their whole career in the trenches in the State Department. And I don't think they really knew what to make of me initially. I had things I wanted to get done, and I was pushing and hard charging, and I ruffled some feathers, uh, both, I think, because of who I was and how I went about doing the job. And we had some really tough challenges during the course of my first year, and we had war breakout in the Horn of Africa, we had our embassies in Kenya and Tanzania attacked by al-Qaeda. This is all 1998. It was brutal. And against that backdrop, I was insufficiently patient with people, I think. I was not sensitive enough to their feelings about both what we were dealing with, but also what it must be like for them to work for me. And so, you know, I was, I think, at risk of veering off course and failing and I had the great good fortune of a senior colleague, a man named Howard Wolpe. And he took me out to lunch one day right before Christmas in 1998 and basically said, you know, you, you're going to blow this job if you don't change how you approach things. And I want to see you succeed. And here's what people are feeling and saying. And here's what they're not telling you. So let me tell you, I want, I want, I want to help you. And I listened carefully and I realized that he was right in many respects, and then I had to up my game. It was also, in terms of personal, professional growth, a real inflection point for me. And if, I think if I hadn't had that experience and I hadn't had people like him willing to help me succeed by telling me where I was failing, uh, I'm not sure that I would have been able to go on and do the things that I was able later to do in the Obama administration. You brought up, you know, basically breastfeeding while while working and having being a young mother and having obviously a very demanding job. It's something that a lot of our listeners face and we talk about on this podcast all the time. But 
How did you approach it? And now looking back, do you have any advice for women and families that are going through this right now? Well, first of all, I think women need to not be shy about advocating for themselves and insisting that they're not asking for anything unreasonable when, you know, they need time to to pump or and they need a place to pump and they need a place to store uh, their breast milk and they, you know, need as fathers do time to go to parent teacher conferences and uh, and to doctor's appointments. So one, women have to advocate for themselves. Two, their bosses, male and female, need to create a leadership environment and culture where it's okay to put family first. I mean, that was one of the things that I most loved about working in the Obama administration. And it was true, frankly, at the State Department when Secretary Albright was Secretary of State. There was an understanding that, you know, as hard as we're all working and as important as these jobs are, we're human beings. And we've got parents and children and spouses and people can fall ill. And if you can't have the confidence to know that you can take care of what is only yours to take care of and that that's accepted and embraced by your colleagues and they will fill in behind you, whether you're among the most senior or the most junior, then you're not going to have an effective team. And I'm really proud that when I was at the UN and then later at the White House's National Security Advisor, not only did you know the president set that tone at the top, but I worked really hard to convey to my teams that you know if they had to leave, they had to go. We we have your back, and it's okay. And I had parents who got very ill and both ultimately died during my time in the Obama administration. But I prioritized being able to be there for them and when they most needed it. And I had the blessing of colleagues who understood and supported that. So I tried to model it, but also to make it not just something that I as a leader had the benefit of, but that was there for everybody. And I think if you don't do that, it's a broader leadership lesson. You're not going to get the most out of your teams and people aren't going to feel invested and they're not going to feel that you care about them as human beings. And I think that's vitally important. Just a few last questions here. We're going to fast forward to your time in the Obama administration. You served, as you said, as UN ambassador, later at, uh, as NSA. You had a reputation for being pretty hard-charging. Uh, things like, we were reading, you silently flipping off Richard Holbrook during a meeting. That was not in the Obama administration. Okay. That was, <laughs> that's a true story, as I write in the book. But it was back when I was the young assistant secretary okay. of state for so, African affairs. So, so but this is kind of, I wanted, because you talked about getting sat down and trying to think about how to be more effective. Do you feel like there was sometimes a double standard, though, as a woman, you know, if your male counterparts would have done that? Of course. Right. Of course. So, first of all, I'd make no apologies <laughs> for that. He was insulting and demeaning, and he was trying to put me down in front of these older career ambassadors that I've described I had to work with. Mm. And I, I, I explained the whole scene in the book, but it culminated in me quietly, without words, just raising my middle finger and making sure that I left it up there long enough for him to see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, <laughs> uh, and he kept talking, he kept arguing and, and as if, you know, nothing had happened. And I, uh, I realized I better uh, add, step out of the meeting in a few minutes and, and call back to Washington and make sure that the Secretary of State heard from me before she heard from him that I'd just given a member of the cabinet the finger. <laughs> and when I, she said, I called her up, I said, Madam Secretary, I want to tell you that, you know, what just happened? She says, well, tell me the whole story. I told her the story. And she goes, 
in words to the effect of, you go, girl. <laughs> so she had she, your back. She there had my back. And so did the National Security Advisor when I called him. So anyway, uh, that was, um, that was an, an unusual and dramatic gesture. Um, but the, the, the lesson for me in that, and it's one that my parents instilled in me, particularly my father, from a very early age, he told us all the time, don't take crap off of anybody. Don't let anybody diss you or demean you or define you for you. Um, and so I don't. And then that was a, one of the more dramatic ex- examples of that. Uh, most of the time, uh, you know, I use my words. <laughs> and, uh, and even if those words were direct, they were, they were a little more polite. But, you know, men who curse, men who bully, men who run roughshod over their teams, they're considered strong. And they're considered perfectly acceptable in their behavior. And Holbrook was a good example of that. Women who do that are bitches or shrews or shrill or you name it. That's obviously a double standard. And I've not had much patience for double standards all my life. And so my view on things is I'm going to do my best, as my parents taught me. I'm going to not take crap. And I'm going to try to care for my teams. And if some people have a problem with who I am, then, you know, it's going to be their problem, not mine. Speaking of a double double standard, one anecdote that I thought was very uh, enlightening. You said that in 2015 at the White House Correspondents Dinner, Donald Trump came up to you, gave you a hug and whispered in your ear that you were treated unfairly over Benghazi. And that I was doing a good job for the country. I, I mean, that's genuinely surprising to me. <laughs> I, I kind it was of, it's surprising to me, <laughs> which is why I, I had to note it in the book. How, it was, well, the weirdest thing. Here's the weird thing. I'd never met him before. I've actually never met him since. I was sitting at a table at the White House. You know these things. Yeah, they're huge dinners. Huge dinners. It's one of those breaks in the dinner where people are milling around and schmoozing and socializing. I was still sitting in my chair at this table. I wasn't even trying to get up and be, you know, social at that <laughs> moment. And from behind me comes this hulking man and literally kind of lifts me up out of the chair. And I turn around and I recognize him. Obviously, it's Donald Trump. And he grabs me and hugs me. It wasn't, I want to hasten to say, it wasn't a gross hug, yeah. but it was kind of creepy and, and strange because I didn't know him. Right. And, but while he was hugging me, he whispered this into my ear. You, you know, I want you to know you, you were treated very unfairly over Benghazi, a phrase we've heard him say very unfairly. He says mm-hmm. it a lot, mm-hmm. usually about himself, but in this case, it was <laughs> about me and that, you know, I was doing a good job for the country. And I thanked him and, you know, it was very, it was a very pleasant exchange. It was just a little weird because he was hugging me. Um, but again, not in a sexual way. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, like some six weeks later, he decides he's running for president. And all of a sudden, everybody and anybody who works for President Obama and President Obama himself are devil incarnate. And, you know. There were there was a moment where I thought during the uh, 2016 campaign that, that that maybe that exchange might be interesting if it came to the light in public, but I just didn't want to get in the middle of the politics of the campaign, and so I kept it to myself. And I actually admit to regretting that some days now. Last question: You considered running for Senate in Maine against Susan Collins, but opted not to. 
as a kid, your goal was becoming a U.S. senator representing D.C. <laughs> Do you see yourself running for office in the future? Possibly. Um, and let me just e- explain how my thinking has evolved. When I was young, I thought that you know being a United States senator would be a great way to serve, except that Washington, D.C. has no voting representation <laughs> in Congress. And we're talking, this is in the 70s. Now it's still the case. But nothing's changed. <laughs> still the case. But while I was in my early 20s, basically when I was a graduate student in Oxford, I really realized that I was deeply interested in public policy and making policy, but that I didn't really feel I had the patience to be a politician. I didn't want to raise money. I hate asking people for stuff. I'm really bad at that. I didn't want to have to compromise my principles. Um, I just didn't feel, I felt like the business of politics and my temperament were not a good match. Then fast forward, I got to be a, a, a policymaker and serve at the highest levels, and I love doing that. And I, I don't rule out uh, serving again, whether in you know elected office or the executive branch or some other kind of way. But that what I concluded in the context of Maine in this cycle is, is that it really wasn't the right time for my family, Not, primarily because my daughter is a junior in high school. This is not an ideal time to uproot her. Um, and, uh, and for a variety of reasons, I, I decided, you know, not now. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Women Rule is produced by Zach Stamp. Dave Shaw is the executive producer of Politico Audio. The show is made in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at DC. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866.